Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparuta de So this is the opportunity to listen and be the observer of how it affects you, the words you hear from me. And in a retreat like this, the winter's retreat, the month of January is past, a new month begins, and the silence, the cold weather, the stillness of winter, and whether the retreat is organized in groups or alone, being the listener, the witness to the way it is, is the important issue. Not trying to get anything or get rid of anything, but to just be the neutral observer, the, the puto, the witness to the way things are. So this is bhavana the Pali word for meditation, for developing the Eightfold Path. And during these days, we, many of you will experience a lot of suppressed memories, emotions that might arise, fear or guilt or remorse, repressed anger, resentment can arise during these silent retreats. And then you can be rather frightened by it because sometimes we see a retreat like this as getting tranquil, getting samadhi and living in a blissful state where all the fears and anger, resentments, the world and all its com complexities uh, are suppressed and we're just in a one-pointed state of happiness that we'd like to hold on to. So many times we've been on retreats where we get various strong uh, sense of samadhi, of luminosity, of peace. And then we want that again. We get... Uh, We'd like to always feel like that, to feel enlightened, to feel blissful, to be 
free from fear and desire. So when we meditate, when we practice meditation to get something, remember now the previous blissful experience is a memory that creates desire. So when you remember past experiences of being peaceful, bliss, through the silence of a retreat, <clears throat> that's a, you're remembering something that happened in the past. And that creates a desire to get it again, to get to that state again. So this is where the witness is the important position to take, not the one who's trying to get something that you don't have in the present, that you remembered having on previous retreats, but being a witness to that very desire desire to get something you're not feeling, you're not having, you don't have at this present moment. So much of our lives, like the cultural conditioning, social conditioning that we've all experienced, very much sets a, a, a habit pattern of repression. Because so much conditioning, so cultural conditioning is about what's right and wrong, what's polite, what's impolite, what is true, what is false. And so you acquire these values from your parents, from your social group. And then we carry them through life and then we make value judgments about ourselves and the world around us because of the cultural conditioning that you acquired when you were quite innocent, before you had any time to reflect on it, you just absorb like a sponge, just absorb everything that is thrown at you, given to you, or what you are told is right and wrong. So during these retreats, we, we we have a lot of, maybe a lot of fear arises <clears throat> over nothing particular in the monastery or the immediate environment, or maybe a lot of anger, resentment uh, may manifest when you're in silent meditation. And then you try to get rid of it. There's one reaction is to suppress it, get rid of it, or feel you you can't meditate, that you, you, uh, you're not a good monk or nun because you're feeling like this, or the mind can proliferate, fight, resent. And all this that goes on can be witnessed to. It is, you know, you, it's not that all of us have a lot in life to resent, because life as we experience from the idea, from the ideal position, it's, life isn't like that. It's not about justice and fairness and everything's right and your parents and your social group and your religious education, uh, whatever it might be, was right or wrong. But it does once we're, when we don't recognize it for conditioning, 
because this word condition is neutral. It's not about right conditioning or wrong conditioning, but conditioning itself through reward and punishment. So when you're good, you, you get rewarded for that, and when you're bad, you're punished. That's the conditioning process. That's social, cultural conditioning that we experience. But witnessing that conditioning is not judging it in any way, but recognizing that a lot of repressed feelings, emotions, desires, Repression is another form of clinging, resistance, repression. The desire, vipavadanha, desire to get rid of or resist something is like this. So many, like in Lumpur Chad, many stories to tell about how he dealt with fear because in Thai society, they're very much conditioned to believe in ghosts and spirits uh, that you can't see, but exist in various places. And it's very strong cultural conditioning. So he had to, you know, he, being a Tudonga Bhikkhu, he would go and live in charnel grounds or graveyards where the most, where the suggestions and conditions for fear of ghosts, of spirits, would be most prominent. Because the graveyard always gives the impression, even to someone who was not conditioned like that, is some place, you know, you, you don't generally want to go into. Because it reminds you of death. And death is another fear we all have, fear of dying. So in the world, you know, the worldly life, the sensory realm that we're experiencing, there's a lot to fear. It's not a, like an unreasonable emotion. It's kind of primal to the animal world. The animal world is a world of survival and fear. Fear is a, is a kind of protective mechanism to be aware where danger lies and try to avoid it. But because of memory, we have, we can remember things in, even in the safest places and be frightened in our condo in London with locks on the door, guards at the gate, or resentment because we've all experienced maybe unfairness in our lives from teachers, from parent, parental parents who didn't understand what we meant, what we were doing, or friends, or just society in general, can make value judgments about us. Fear of what other people think is another very strong social conditioning experience. You know, what will the neighbors think? But the witness isn't, isn't thinking, it's not about thinking or 
deliberately trying to do something, but to work with the way things are. So even though you don't have to go to a graveyard to deal with fear of ghosts or spirits or fear of something out there in the atmosphere that is uh, some kind of menacing presence, just the way we can make ourselves frightened with what we're thinking, remembering the things of the past. Fear is also uh, an emotion that we sometimes like to experience because, you know, you wonder why people go to horror movies to be scared out of their wits by what they see on a movie screen. Why would you pay money to be scared? Because it is a, a exciting feeling to be frightened and scared, to feel like you're a victim of life, like you're the victim of society or a group, a social group. There's something very egotistical about playing the role of a victim of life. Because that makes us feel, you know, we're somebody who's been unfairly treated or being victimized by something else outside ourselves. But the witness is aware. When one feels victimized by life, it's like this. You know, so you, you're taking the position, of, it's the Bhutang Sarananggachami, refuge in Buddha, to witness the way it is. It's not about getting rid of fear or justifying everything and just trying to uh, explain or analyze everything away. The more you try to think about it and analyze yourself and blame your fear, on, uh, your, your frightened tendencies on others, or maybe you do it to yourself. You think you're just a weak person because you you have a lot of fear to deal with. Whatever you think, whatever direction the critical mind takes, it's about, you know, it's, it's still words and thoughts and habits that you're using. You're not being a witness, you're being a critic. You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the world. So sometimes one can relate to to bhavana or meditation as taking the position, the witness position, as a kind of mental enema, a cleansing process. So the word enema, it means a kind of cleansing process to the body, but this is a mental enema where we we don't have to do anything but witness the mental conditions that arise. What comes out of your mind might be repulsive like any physical enema, but it's, it's being released from you, yourself. You're, you're letting go of it. You're allowing it to manifest, become fully conscious and not clinging to it. The puto is a is a is the refuge that we all refer to. Buddha as a refuge, not in some idealized Buddha of the past, 
not in some kind of traditional ceremonial chant, but it's, it's about witnessing the way things are, because this is what, when we talk about Gotama, the Buddha's enlightenment, he, he was witnessing the way things are, not trying to get rid of things, fight or resist, or just get into a state where he doesn't feel anything. So that image of under the Bodhi tree, where he gives up trying to control his mind, trying to arrange everything, trying to get into a nice peaceful state, that can be another habit, he just let go of everything. And then all the forces of the universe, as the, as the legend goes, come and tempt him both on the fear level, the desire level, and his response is witnessing, not trying to control it, get rid of it, condemn it, but just noticing, witnessing the presence and the absence of a phenomenon that arises. So it's a fearless position. In my own experience, the uh, it's that's what I've learned to how I've learned to to really develop or cultivate bhavana or samaditi right view is not to fight or resist but to observe. So in Lumpur Cha's definition of puto, which is the Buddha's name, means it's one who's a witness, knowing it's like this. So during this retreat, you know, when, when negativity arises, fear, jealousy, anxiety, worry, doubt, See it as a blessing. It's asking to be let go of. You know, it arises in consciousness where the conditions in, in a retreat here are not frightening. It's a very safe place, Amaravati Monastery, you know, in terms of external conditions. Then the community is 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 uh, trained with the vinaya with the precepts so they're committed to nonviolence to celibacy to right speech that's our intention as a as a group so in terms of safety it's as safe as you can get where you have uh, the community you're actually living with associated with it is makes such a strong commitment to moral precepts so even if fear or jealousy anxiety worry doubt arise don't see it as some kind of don't take it personally in other words 
Don't see it as some kind of thing you've got to get rid of. If you want to get enlightened, you've got to get rid of doubt. Because that very position of I've got to get rid of doubt, get rid of fear, is the ego again. I'm somebody who has something I shouldn't have. If, if I'm wise and enlightened, I wouldn't have any doubts or fears. Is a, is the ideal we might create around Buddhist monks or nuns or the Buddha himself. But the conditioning, the, the social conditioning, for example, the sila bhattabharamasa, attachment to conventions, social conventions, religious conventions. So the vinaya is a convention, a moral convention that we attach to, not to create a a sense of personal personality with it because we can become very arrogant when we look down on others who don't seem to have the high standards of moral conduct that we that we see in ourselves that we are clinging to it's not about creating a sense of superiority moral superiority or condemning others but it's they're guidelines for action and speech and community life and daily life. Social conventions is, is, is something that we might not even notice. We, so much of Western psychology is based on the ego we emphasize the word ego a lot to a sense of a sense of self-conceit or self-importance. But even an ego that where we despise ourselves or look down on ourselves or criticize ourselves, whatever identity you form, a habitual identity, attachment to your physical body. your physical identity, then the ego comes from that strong, strong conditioning through social conditioning, through thinking. Wichikicha is the third pattern, which prevents us from seeing the, the right path to samaditi, which is translated generally in English as doubt. And so we investigate doubt to not be sure, to be uncertain, to be unstable, to not know something. It's like this. And that's about thinking, isn't it? When you, when you realize the, the danger of attachment to thought, how you create a whole world of expectation and fears just through thinking and live in a realm of doubt and uncertainty and instability because the world is an illusion. It's not what you think. 
it's not a condition that that you can control. The world arises and ceases according to other conditions. The sensory bodies we identify with are conditions. The, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, everything we think is conditioned. Conditions can be skillful, kusala conditions, or unskillful ones, or kusala conditions. But the puto, the knower, the witness, is aware. Skillful, unskillful, good, bad, are conditions created through thinking, through believing, through grasping. And when you really penetrate that with wisdom, then the, the insight, the insight you get is letting go. It doesn't mean getting rid of the conditions, but it means just release your grasp. So in terms of samadhi or concentration, it's, it's more like a relaxed state of awareness, not an intense grasping state of intense concentration on an object, but a sense of relaxation, of letting go, of releasing the body from all its tensions, releasing your mind from all its fears and desires. And so when this happens, when we really trust in letting go, then we can, and samaditi, or right understanding, or perfect understanding arises, is there naturally. We're not trying as, as individual people to be wise and get right understanding, samaditi, because that, when we think we're, we're very wise and have samaditi, that's another conceit. After 55 years of monastic life, if I still think I have samaditi as a person, that's a delusion, because sumato is an illusion. It's a, it's a costume, it's a convention. It's not a real person. But puto is, you can trust. This awareness, conscious awareness in the present is like this. So striving to get right understanding is 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 uh, good. You know, there's nothing bad about it. Wanting to become enlightened, wanting to become free from suffering, wanting to attain Buddhahood, uh, wanting to become a bodhisattva, wanting to become anything like very, you know, just a good person or a good monk or nun. That's good karma. So it's it's good, but it's still a convention. It's still a condition, a sense of me and mine, me trying to you know become a very good monk or a good person, or get a good rebirth in the next life, or even to get out of rebirth system, wanting to not be reborn again. 
is still a thought, words that we, we uh, read in the scriptures, which are good, but the grasping of that, the sense of me and mine, I'm somebody who doesn't want to be reborn again, is like this. It's still a condition that arises and ceases. So good is impermanent, bad is impermanent. And the Puto makes no judgments about good and bad anymore, just knowing whatever condition you're experiencing, you're, you're attached with the present, is the, the insight is to let go, relax with it, let it be what it is, and it ceases all by itself. So allowing the natural cessation of phenomenon is a relaxed, open awareness not an intense effort to destroy evil or get rid of the, the satanic forces in your mind or the universe. To want to get rid of ignorance is a noble desire, but it's still a creation of words. I want to be free from all ignorance is a, is a wholesome thought. But a thought is still a condition. So when we, out of habit, out of not knowing anybody, we cling to these high-minded ideals, these goals, these conventions, but out of avicca, out of not understanding the way things are. So the Four Noble Truths, the basic, the first sermon of the Buddha, is a really skillful tool to use to investigate that. Not just to, we're not here to just become good people, good monks, good nuns, good samanas, good lay people, even though that might be a, a wholesome karma experience. You as a, what you think yourself to be as a person is making good karma. But that very sense of being a person, a separate form in the universe, is a basic delusion of the ego, sakaya ditti. So you can't get rid of sakaya ditti, but you can know it by being a witness to it, whether it be positive ego or a negative one is not the issue anymore, but perfectly healthy, well-adjusted, normal personality or a neurotic one is not, these are judgments made in the society. But if, you know, I've heard many People say, you know, I can't meditate, I don't have good karma, I've got to deal with all my repressed anger and, and fears, and I need a psychotherapy, I need to get rid of all these obsessive ideas that come to my mind, I want to become a healthy person, personality. These are all 
good desires. But it's still from the sense of total belief that you are what you think, what you're feeling, what your emotions are. And as long as that belief goes unquestioned, then you're always going to experience suffering, no matter what you do, no matter how good you are. Because we all have to witness the changing conditions of life, the COVID pandemic, the climate change, the rumors, the political problems of various countries, seeing our parents grow old, get sick and die, we get attached to dogs and cats, and then they die, and then we feel, no matter how good you've been, you still feel grief and sorrow at the passing of beloved pets. Is that good or bad, or right or wrong? It's not, not about good or bad, right or wrong anymore, but it is when you're attached. When this attachment is caused through ignorance, then suffering, we create suffering through our lives, throughout our lives. Because death is always the obvious end of a life. And if your sense of self-worth is attached to what you look like, your body, and your social conditioning, and your beliefs and thoughts and memories, then one dies in fear or with the hope to get a rebirth. There's still the, the desire to become. Fear of, you know, some people fear because they haven't been perfect in life, that when they die, then they, you know, then when people die around as many times, uh, the relatives fear they, they should have, they've made bad karma because this person, uh, you didn't tell them you loved them enough, you didn't, you didn't give them perfect care and love and, un, and total appreciation in their lives, you didn't visit them enough as you should have. So there's a lot of guilt when, when relatives or friends, good friends pass away because we create this sense of what we should have done in the past. But no matter how good, caring we might be, death is the inevitable end of a birth. And so we've experienced birth already. We don't remember it, being born, physically born, because we didn't have a language. We didn't have a hadn't developed memory with language to remember what it was like to be born but we were conscious. Then we acquire the cultural and even religious attitudes about death. That's social conditioning. And death itself is a rather frightening word for many people. It's not considered polite to talk about death at uh, social events. 
It's even, you know, I find even myself, when somebody dies to say they're dead, it seems rather blunt. So you use the word passing away or something less startling as they're dead, because that seems so heartless, so final. But it is true. What is born dies. So a mental enema is a cleansing. It's cleansing the consciousness, allowing what you've repressed and feared to come into consciousness rather than just trying to slam the door of consciousness every time fear, doubt, anxiety, worry arise. You know, we, we get caught in it and spend a, our lives worrying about anything that we can worry about because it's become a, a habit of the, our thinking habits. The future is always a possibility to worry about something. The future is one big worry right now, isn't it? Who knows what's going to happen about pandemics? or climate change, or universal problems, you know, with the universe we, we see, we experience through the senses. And we know we are going to get old, and getting old, you know, the, the physical form weakens, its senses fade. And it's like this. But in awareness, the puto, the witness, doesn't get old, isn't afraid, doesn't worry about anything, is not guilt-ridden, regretful or blaming or feels victimized. These are all mental constructions that we tend to hold in us, that we never, when they enter the door of consciousness, we we fight, we, we develop habits of resistance, of repression. So in bhavana or meditation, the fearlessness of the attitude of puto, of a witnessing the way it is, is not a witness, is not afraid. It's aware of fear. So what is puto? What is the witness position? We call it aware, conscious awareness, mindfulness, pure consciousness, or whatever. You know, the word doesn't doesn't matter as long as you get the right. You know, you understand the the what it really means is to be. Aware of this present moment is like this. Now that sounds very simple in words, but the conditioning process is, is complicated. So we have to witness, sometimes we have to deal with just witnessing loneliness, boredom, conditions that you know, we don't want, we don't want to feel alone or lonely or left out. We don't want to feel 
bored with life. You know, we, these are created through, through the idea that life should be just one interesting experience after another. But no matter how, how many interesting experiences you had in your life, life is quite boring, really. So that's why people go to horror shows, because they're bored. Because then they feel excited, frightened, horrified, and that's, that's, a, that's a, a state they can feel alive with. But boredom, what do you do with it? How do you cope with boredom? How do you get rid of it? Of course, the usual way is to distract yourself with something interesting. So, sangsarawatta, or the worldly life that we identify with, is an endless seeking of distractions. Because otherwise, just being conscious, aware, aware consciously aware like this, is, seems boredom, seems like boredom to the thinking mind. Because the thinking mind, can, you can excite yourself with thoughts. It's interesting to analyze yourself. Astrology, take your astrological sign, becomes more interesting as a person because you're born under a certain sign and the stars and the sun and moon were all in alignment and it creates a sense of self-interest. So astrology can be very interesting. Or self-analysis. Why do I fear? Why do I suffer? Who's to blame for it? And, uh, you know, that can be very interesting because we didn't all come from happy home lives where our parents were absolutely perfect or life had been perfectly fair. So who does, who's to blame for my suffering? Who can I blame? So praise and blame are worldly dhammas, you know. The praise is what we're after, what we want. And that's exciting, that's interesting. To be praised, to be acknowledged, to be respected, to be admired is very pleasant. To be disregarded, ignored, or condemned is very unpleasant. So modern life is very much aimed at trying to become something, you know, become a famous person, become a rock star, become president of the United States, become uh, somebody that's in the news, become a, a win a beauty contest or, you know, get involved with, join a French Foreign Legion or some exciting militia or, you know, like all these ISIS and Middle Eastern, Asian 
militia groups that are very exciting to be a to be fighting for righteousness, to be a fighter for human rights. A fighter for democracy, a fighter for freedom. That gives you a sense of being somebody who's on the right side of goodness and skillfulness. And so that's the one way we can devote ourselves to good causes through only saying that we should devote ourselves to peace movements, to social justice, to de democratic principles, to the rule of law, to all the best we can think of. So one consider that's good karma. It might be, might not be very good karma because so many you know, righteous groups are very deluded. Being feeling righteousness is what you you're aiming for to make everything right according to what you think or what you've been told can be a, a form of tyranny. Because if I attach to righteousness and you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. And what does that mean in terms of relationship? You know, I, if I am fixed, attached to being right, and you don't agree, then you're wrong. And then that's a kind of absolutizing of right and wrong. You become absolutely wrong, and I become absolutely right. Where, where is there, how can there be any communication between right and wrong? Except through destroying what's wrong? Go on righteous warfare to kill off the evil forces or the the wrong views of others. You know, so we get caught in in endless wars and terrorist news of terrorism, killing, murdering, collateral, collateral damaging, bombing people, villages, and so forth, where a lot of innocent people get killed out of the sense of righteousness, of clinging blindly to being right, or for principles such as standing up for democracy. And that's exciting, that's not boring. But when you talk to men and women who have been in military lives and dealt with conflicts and wars. They're quite boring, actually. So much of it is waiting around. But when we go to the cinema and watch war movies, it's all very exciting. So excitement is available to us, it's a distraction, where boredom is what we don't want. So we ignore it and seek various ways to seek pleasure, happiness, comfort, romance, adventure, excitement. And that's the world. It's, the world is like that. It's a, it's a, it's why it's an illusory, illusory world.
It's not the real world that everybody claims it is. It's the world of different illusions that individuals hold and grasp out of ignorance. So this retreat, you know, I encourage you to, to investigate, not to take sides with any th issues or that, but to investigate. So this investigation is, how is it done? It's not investigation of who's right and who's wrong, but it's a witnessing, observing, like a really mindful soldier who's just out in the field observing, just open to, to life and the sounds and sights that are present in the, in the, in the present moment are like this. But the soldier is interested in, you know, trying to identify any dangerous enemies lurking in the, in the forest or in the horizon where we're not looking for enemies, but just observing the witness Dhamma, ultimate reality, supreme reality, whatever words you want to use for it is apparent here and now. So it's available every moment. Because that's where we are, that's where we experience life, is always here and now. It's like this. Just sitting here in the temple is like this. Breathing is like this. Sitting is like this. And what is, what is it that's aware of sitting? Are you aware of sitting or is sitting just the natural movement of the body sitting standing walking lying down do you force yourself to breathe you know you can take pranayama lessons and take develop all kinds of exercises with breath but we're not asking you to do that we're encouraging you just to be the awareness of the inhalation is like this the exhalation is like that it sounds very boring but getting through boredom is, is, is where wisdom lies. When life becomes boring, when you get old, life is increasingly boring. On a winter's retreat where there's nothing to do but sit, stand, walk, lie down, watch your breath, it's very boring. And then we think of all kinds of things we should do to get rid of the boredom. But boredom is a mental state. It's not ultimate reality. So what is ultimate reality? What is the supreme reality here and now is conscious awareness. And that's where boredom ceases. Where loneliness ceases where the ego collapses, disappears, where the social conditioning, conventional attachments disappear. They, you're not resisting or denying them, but they naturally cease. Their mental 
states that, that arise and cease are very ephemeral. They have no substance. So it's up to you as individuals. So this, what I've said this afternoon is an encouragement because that's one thing I can do is encourage you. Because the Buddha's teaching is, is uh, in very skillful directions on how to end suffering. So the first noble truth is, is about suffering, to be understood. The third noble truth is the end of suffering. So the end of suffering, what does that mean? You don't get old, you don't get sick anymore, you don't feel grief when your beloved mother passes away or whatever, when your favorite cat dies. It means that you're aware of grief, of old age, and you're not making it into, you're not attaching to it. It doesn't make you cold-hearted and indifferent to life, but it allows empathy to arise in social situations. So you don't become just kind of a totally unemotional uh, zombie. But you can, you know, then you feel the the wisdom of the Brahma Viharas. What's left when you've let go of everything is metta karuna mudita upeka, is how we relate to the world, the deluded world, the illusory world that we are experiencing through the forms that we no longer identify with. So I offer this as a reflection.